Australia, a name derived from the Latin for southern land, sits as a continent unto itself at the far reaches of the Asian landmass, receiving its first settlers over 50,000 years ago when the Ice Age connected the two by a land bridge. It was not until the European settlements in the 17th century did Australia have a written record, and also when it started receiving its largest growth in population. When Australia became united as a federated commonwealth in 1901, one of the first acts it passed was the White Australia Policy, favoring European settlement and limitation of the recent Asian, particularly Chinese, immigration and influence. Only until the 1970s did this policy shift towards broader and more open immigration. Tonight, Matthew Grant from the Australian Natives Association joins us to discuss why this shift occurred and perhaps why a return to the older policies might be beneficial to the people of his country. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we are joined by a very special guest, Matthew Grant from the Australian Natives Association from the land down under, Australia. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you very much. Um, pleasure to be here and um, I've, you know, I've been listening to Myth for a very long time, so it's a, it's a great honor and a privilege to speak to your audience. I think um, you know, a, a special breed of people listen to this, this show, and um, I'm happy to be here. And just before we get in, stuck into any business, I do have to give some quick disclaimers um, to comply with our association's media policy. So first of all, the views expressed here are my own and not necessarily those of the Australian Natives Association. And uh, secondly, by being a guest on this show should not necessarily be taken as an endorsement of anything published on the platform. But with that said, um, thank you very much for, for having me on. It'd be a bit of a spin. All right. I'm glad you talked to your lawyer before joining the podcast. Um, that sounds a lot like some of the legalese that we have stateside where, um, yeah, it's it's a disclaimer that's often on broadcast programs and you know television talk shows and stuff like that. So oh um, yeah, yeah. Well, look, we we're the A and A. We we have some pretty um, rigid legal um, policy and stuff like that to protect yeah. members and the association. It's all all part of the game, I suppose, and very very important for the longevity of the thing. No, I completely understand and respect that. And I don't actually know too well some of the, uh, the speech laws in your country compared to ours. I mean, technically in the, in the United States, we're allowed to say whatever we want, but in practice, it doesn't quite work that way. And uh, yeah. I, I understand anybody who's wanting to uh, 
uh, check their power level, as they say, uh, and just be, be prudent, uh, completely support that in any circumstance. Um, and, uh, I, I was, um, uh, I was talking with Matthew before we started and, uh, you know, one of the things that has always been kind of interesting to me as an American, and I think kind of makes Australia and the United States, uh, have something in common is we were both uh, British colonies and after actually the revolutionary war in the United States or the colonies of the, the Americas against the British empire, uh, the British were looking for something to, uh, replace that loss of territory and Australia was a good candidate for that. And one of the things growing up though, that kind of always intrigued me and probably confused me to be honest, and maybe Matthew can clear this up was the origins of the British colonization of the land of Australia was at least in the beginning, primarily from convicts, prisoners. Mm. And, I didn't know what percentage of Australians today are descendants of prisoners. Is it a small percentage or has everybody got some kind of uh, rebellious blood in them? That, that's something I've always wondered about. <laughs> um, look, it's hard, it's hard to say. Um, and I'll tell you why that is. Um, there was definitely a large um, number of people who were of convict descent who actually kind of erased that from their history. Um, I think it was it was definitely frowned upon. You know, everyone's like, you've got a bit of a chip on their shoulder. Yeah, I'm descended from free settlers, not from convicts, you know. So it's actually, it's quite hard to tell, um, you know, anecdotally talking to people if they're actually from convict or free settler stock. Um, but by, by this point in history, at least, uh, it's predominantly people would be majority of free settler stock rather than convict. Um, but to me, it's a, it would be a badge of honor anyway to be of convict stock, um, to, to have your heritage all the way back to the start of the country. It, when Australia was settled after the, the War of American Independence, it was a really interesting period in history. I mean, you think about it just logically, like well, why was there so many convicts uh, in the United Kingdom that they needed to settle an entire colony on the other side of the earth for them. And this was during a period of great upheaval in the United Kingdom, during the highland clearances and the enclosures where basically land barons were privatizing the commons. And um, this land where for generations and generations, uh, settlers like farmers and peasants were able to live off the commons. They were able to graze their sheep on it and grow their own fruit and vegetables and all the rest of it. And uh, everyone kind of survived on the common land. And around the time in the in the Australian settlement, uh, the land that was the commons was being privatized and enclosed and protected by law. So these large financial interests in the United Kingdom were able to massively increase the profit of land create more industrial style farming and drive all of the commoners off the land, which meant that they lost their livelihoods and their abilities to survive. And they were compelled into, um, you know, thievery basically. And the penalty for stealing a loaf of bread could be getting sent to Australia as a convict, you know, for 15 years or equivalent. You know, this is at a time when there was a death penalty for stealing a horse a lot of the death penalties for horse stealing was commuted to life 
life imprisonment in, in the colony of New South Wales. So there was a lot of convict, a lot of people who were convicts, really, I, um, I don't hold a great big grudge against them because they were commonly the commoners who were driven off their land. And the same in the highlands in Scotland, you know, all the commoners were driven off their lands to make way for cattle and sheep on an industrial scale, which meant that a lot of people were put into hardship. And if you were a free citizen that came to Australia uh, without being a convict, you were usually here as an indentured servant. So the, the, the financial cost of transporting someone from Britain to Australia was quite enormous. And not a lot of free men had the money to do it. So they would contract themselves <clears throat> to be an indentured servant for you know, 15 years to make the voyage. Sorry, <clears throat> bit, bit crook at the moment. Um, well, the the American settlement history is a little bit different, but we, we do share the indentured servant um, aspect. And one of our longtime guests, uh, James Lafond, he's he's written several books about the subject, and he's told us that a lot of the ways people were actually brought into that program were under force and it was very brutal and they were coming from the same place. It was the streets of pick your city in the United Kingdom. And a lot of these people were, were children. A lot of these people were just poor and they, they were desperate. And, you know, somebody would come along in the night and basically throw a bag over you and, and put you on a ship. And it was, uh, it was quite brutal. And I don't know how much of that went on in Australia, but I would not be surprised if a lot of the people that were sent there were probably unfairly sent there, or at least, uh, not, not as uh, villainous as perhaps the titles that they were given might imply. Uh, and I was uh, going to ask you also about uh, botany Bay. Uh, this is actually something that I remember from, uh, an episode of Star Trek, if you can believe that. Um, one of the famous villains, his name was uh, Khan Singh. He was this uh, superhuman, hyper-intelligent guy that was uh, basically a threat to the status quo. And they, they all put him and his, his uh, colleagues on this uh, kind of like a prison ship, sort of a colony ship. And, and they just shot him out into the middle of space to try to get rid of him. And uh, I, I think that probably is an allusion to uh, the Australian penal colony. So yeah, yeah. I wonder if you could talk about Botany Bay a little bit. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, um, Botany Bay was, was the district where the first fleet kind of pulled in. Set, so the first fleet was the first settlement fleet that was sent to Australia with their you know, first load of, of men and equipment to, to start settling the land, um, which would be the colony of New South Wales. And um, it's quite interesting that in the early history of Botany Bay, and which later became Sydney, which is the, the capital of New South Wales, um, Botany Bay was actually quite inhospitable. Um, there's plenty of fish and things in the water, but the, the soil was actually quite terrible around Botany Bay. And the district of Sydney more broadly was, was seen as cursed land. Um, no one had ever tried growing wheat or many of the seed stock that they brought from the United Kingdom. And a lot of it was quite unsuccessful. And the colony was on the brink of famine quite often for a large period of history. Um, 
Now, when they uh, eventually ventured out a little bit further, they found some soil that was able to sustain wheat and all the rest of it, which which saved them all from famine. I believe that was um, near what's Bankstown today. Um, but yeah, it had lots of trees and timber for constructing things. Um, there were some indigenous uh, Aboriginal people uh, in the district. I think the uh, the relations early on um, with the indigenous people in that district were pretty reasonable. Um, I think Philip, um, Captain Philip, was a bit worried about being exposed to Aboriginal attack, um, and there was some some minor um, disputes, but it was all pretty pretty on the level. Um, in fact, one of the leading um, indigenous men of the tribe there, in fact, uh, learned how to speak basic English and lived amongst the uh, the early settlement in Botany Bay and and uh, was so fond of the settlers that he actually kept a, a portrait of the queen in his um, in his little hut. So um, yeah, bit a bit of interesting history in in Botany Bay, I suppose. That was where all of settlement really um, really started kicking off. It was a bit um, bit hampered, as I said, by the soil conditions. And then the other problem is is they had the Great Dividing Range just to the west of it. So along the east coast of Australia, there's a large mountain range, which for many years was considered quite impassable um, to build a road. It took many many, many years before they were able to build a, a road or at least a, a, a horse and cart trafficable track through the range um, to open up the grand interior. So west of the Great Dividing Range was lots of open pasture suitable for livestock grave, grazing and wheat and all the rest of it, um, which was which was taken up many years after Botany Bay was settled. But Interesting story about the construction of that road. It was built during the Governor Lachlan Macquarie's time, and uh, every man who swung a pick on that road was given his freedom. So a lot of convicts and um, servants that were working on that road were made free men at the completion of it, and they went on to settle Bathurst, um, which is a district in Goulburn, uh, west of the Great Dividing Range. But yeah, I suppose that's a little synopsis of it, but. No, Probably that's not the great. Best history of botany. Yeah. The, the example of uh, the pickaxe, I think, is illustrative because if anyone like myself uh, has actually used that tool, uh, it is very slow, very arduous, and uh, exhausting. And mm. compared to the machinery we have at our disposal today, if you are literally showing up on a frontier with no infrastructure, no no energy, uh, no really even human capital to speak of really other than the people you know, that are uh, nearby you. Uh, you have to do everything. You really do. And it's, it, it explains why there was such a, a demand for labor back then as opposed to today where you, know, you get one guy with an excavator or a backhoe and mm. he, he, can, he can develop that road and couple days but you know you would you'd need a, a road crew and uh, teams of um, beasts of burden horses mm. oxen provisions you cool. need a ship captain to bring all that stuff yeah. to you I mean it was it was insane and there was no um, you know there's no diesel fuel there's no gas station uh, I don't know what you guys yeah. call it uh, petrol or something but um, it, there's nothing. And so you, you, you need a lot of sturdy men. 
And it explains, I think, a lot of this colonial policy where they were basically just trying to get bodies to do all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And the, the other thing worth noting as well is just the, the sheer distance from the United Kingdom to Australia. So, you know, uh, the United States was quite, quite a bit closer in terms of logistics in the early American colonies, right. where, whereby it would take about a year's voyage to get to Australia. Yeah, you'd have to go around yeah. Africa. I mean, there was That's no right, Suez yeah. Canal. And I don't know what the... Um, the dangers of that, you know, was, but you're, you're getting close to Antarctica at that point. So sailing around yeah. the Cape or the Horn, as they would call it for at least South America was considered very dangerous. And, uh, yeah, not, not only the distance, but the risk as well was very high. Yeah. And yet d- disease on ships as well. I mean, it's quite common in our, in our folklore for, for stories of women to have given birth on the ship and the the child is six months old before it even lands ashore and sees land for its first time. Was that part of the settlement policy to have families or women at least? Yeah. Uh, Because some some, uh, empires did not do, like the Spanish were notorious for just sending Mm. their surplus male population without any any women. uh, Yeah, go generate some mestizos from the locals. That's right. Yeah, no, it was, was in fact. So obviously, um, with convicts, you know, they would just, they would be sent on their own. But they, as an interesting bit of folklore, I don't think I've ever heard of in any other country. But back in the day, they had what were called wife ships, where they would literally uh, bring ashore a whole boatload of women that would be, I suppose, um, you know, betrothed to soldiers or to settlers. Um, obviously, they had their pick, but they'd, they'd, they'd bring them off a ship and they'd, they'd have a, da- a dance in the town hall in Sydney. And there they would uh, they would be courted by the men of the town that were looking for a partner. So these women were, you know, they would get free voyage to the colony, unlike men, um, for the opportunity of bringing women to the colony. So it was definitely uh, it was definitely a policy decision to bring out the, uh, the the stock of women from the United Kingdom to marry up with the men that settled the land and. Uh, Obviously, as time went by, the need for that diminished as you'd have native-born right. women available. But yeah, there was a policy for wife ships, and then obviously with free settlers coming out um, as indentured, ser- indentured servants or not, they would be entitled to bring their family with them as part of the cost. You, you mentioned Sydney, and obviously that's probably the most famous Australian city in the world. Um, I believe Canberra is actually the capital, though. But Yeah, uh, that's right, yep. But I, I don't know too much other than you know, the other major cities about the layout of the country, other than most of them are on the East Coast. And then you have like uh, mm. Melbourne, I think, on the West, but or, or Perth. I'm, I'm probably mixing things yeah, up. Yeah, Perth, Perth. Yep, yep. Okay. So what what was the reason? And I, I kind of know probably what the main reason was, but what was the reason for the concentration on the eastern part of Australia? Uh, so I think it's... It's primarily the climate. Um, so the southeast of Australia is a temperate climate, much similar to, to kind of northern European conditions. Better rainfall, better pasture, and it was just more <clears throat> hospita- hospitable. Uh, Western Australia and the north of Australia are more tropical, hot climates, which uh, 
you know, up until probably the 1920s, mm-hmm. uh, most most people were convinced that that white men couldn't settle the tropics. Uh, a historian and writer, Marcus Clark, was convinced that Australia would always leave the North kind of dormant and empty because it, it's too inhospitable for men of European stock to settle. And uh, they were concerned that that was a great security threat uh, because the you know the desperate eyes of Asia looking upon that empty land would would there wouldn't be much to defend it. Um, but yeah, that's the main reason the climate. I mean, a lot of Australia is quite inhospitable. It's a it's the driest um, inhabited continent in the world. Mm. It has a huge landmass of of massive districts with next to no rain. And it's quite interesting in the central districts of Australia, there's, you know, a breed of frog that will wait for rain, you know, a couple of years at a time. Like they will wow. sit themselves and hi- they'll hibernate in the sand. Then when it rains, they come up, get a good drink, they breed, do everything they're going to do. Then they retain enough water and bury themselves in the sand. It's it's amazing. With, um, with modern technology, whatever that means, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for wells, for example, and maybe mm. irrigation canals and piping. It, has there been a, a noted increase in the population or settlement of the, uh, yeah. we know it as the outback. I'm not sure if that's the same place you're talking about, but uh, the the dry areas of Australia, has there been an increase in the settlement of that region or is it just still considered not really a very good place to set up shop? There's, there's been enormous efforts, uh, particularly in the 20th century, to make these areas habitable. The biggest and most famous of these is the Snowy Hydro uh, scheme in the Snowy Mountains of New South Wales, where basically <clears throat> there was a large river called the Snowy River, which picked up most of the snow melt and just sent it straight out into the ocean. And over a 20-year, you know, multi-million dollar development at the end of World War II, they turned that flow of the Snowy River around mm. and pumped it into the west, which created the uh, the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area and the Riverina. Um, the, the Murray District got a lot more water, which enabled enormous settlement uh, in districts that were previously far more inhospitable. So a lot of irrigation work allowed large produce of oranges and rice, different kinds of production opened up by these big infrastructure jobs snowy being the most famous of them but there has been a lot of dams constructed in queensland and western australia to try and um, enable this work i i I heard about the uh hydroelectric and irrigation project the the snowy river um Mm. project and i'd like to go back to that actually um but do you know if australia is self-sufficient in food I, i know it's a big kind of a ranching agricultural mm. economy for i think obvious reasons given the amount of you know land that's available but is i, I don't know in terms of the uh, cultivation of like crops and stuff is is as heavy mm. in australia given the climate as it would be in the united states or somewhere like ukraine where there's just enough uh, arable land and, and and water for that type of thing but in terms of just the the food uh, itself would you happen to know anything about that um, yeah yeah um it, it's actually a bit of a contentious topic so um is a, a member of our parliament in australia bob catter um 
has raised a lot of issues how we've actually become <clears throat> a net importer of a lot of food products um, due to our population size and probably the specialization of some of our product. So instead of having a more diverse agricultural sector, it's become more economies of scale geared towards wheat, cattle, a few, um, a few classes of agriculture. I would say on the whole, in a hypothetical scenario where world trade comes to an immediate halt, we would have enough food to sustain everyone. Um, yeah. It would be less diverse, though. And, and I'm, I'm just going to take a shot in the dark as to what the population size is today, but is it around 20 million or, or more? I, I can't remember. Um, I know Canada is roughly one-tenth. Uh, and, and for some reason, I, in my mind, I think of Australia like Canada, uh, obviously a little bit warmer, but, uh, you know. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you know off the top of your head what the population is now? Yeah, it's around 25 million. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and most of that is East Coast and That's southern. right. More than, yeah. more, than, more than half of Australia's population live in, I think it's the three or four primary cities, leaving the other half of the population spread out amongst hundreds of towns. It's quite an interesting um, situation. A lot of that was caused by the First World War. So Australia actually had the largest per capita casualties in the First World War versus hmm. any other country. Um, and that actually emptied out a lot of our rural frontier towns because the way they organized the divisions back in the first world war is, you know, oh, these men all live in the same district. They'll be ideal fighting soldiers together because they know each other and they, they share the same, you know, way of thinking and culture. What that meant was, is when one division got crushed, a whole district was depopulated of its men leading to those areas dying and the drift to the cities being accelerated. That's probably uh, something to talk about a bit down, down the track. Sure. Well, I, just because I, I brought it up uh, as something to go back to, uh, the Snowy River Project was just something that came across my preliminary reading of the settlement mm -hmm. of Australia as one of the reasons, apparently, as to why, uh, at least after World War II, the the settlement of the country was was changed from predominantly a British one to more broadly mm -hmm. a European and then uh, arguably Asian uh, mm -hmm. origin uh, or region of origin uh, settlement pattern. It, would you agree with that assessment? Was there like this huge demand for construction workers or something, or what? What? what yeah, was the role? Look, it, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it, it plays. It, um, a notable role in all of that. The main reason why at the end, World War II, after World War II had kicked off and was finished and we managed to survive um, the Japanese invasion, was uh, we recognized that Australia at that time was populated around four, four and a half million people. And uh, we'd actually kind of began scratching the bottom of the barrel of the United Kingdom we were running out of people to immigrate to Australia and it was recognized as a matter of national defense that we needed a much larger population to cover this enormous continent and defend it from, you know, our, our adversaries. So at that time it was acknowledged that we need to increase the scope of immigration. Now the policy of a white Australia was still fully the, uh, the, 
the the top of the fleet, you know, the the bandmaster of the whole country, the Australian Labor Party under Arthur Caldwell, who was a staunch advocate of a white Australia, <clears throat> recognised that a white Australia probably couldn't continue to exist. Uh, we previously had relied on the defence of the British Navy to have our white Australia against, you know, the the potential threat of Asia. But after the Second World War and the fall of Singapore, all confidence was lost in the United Kingdom to defend Australia. Obviously, we had some new hope in the United States and the ANZUS treaties, but it was recognised that uh, we needed population and the scope should be expanded, not just from Britain, but now to continental Europeans, um, you know, even possibly Maltese, Greeks and Italians, probably being the furthest end of the spectrum. Is your, is your current some... prime minister of, of Italian origin? I just I just saw the name and I was wondering about that. I, I don't know too much about your politics. Yeah. But... Yeah. Look, I um, I haven't done the early life section on his Wikipedia, but his his surname does sound uh, Mediterranean. Right. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, he's uh, yeah. It, there are a lot of um, Italian descent Australians. I know um, um, Daniel Ricciardo. I don't know how to say his name, but yeah, he's the uh, race car driver from Australia as well. Yeah, there you go. You probably <laughs> like him more than in your prime minister, but I'm just yeah, going to take a yeah. wild guess. <laughs> Although he's not doing yeah. too well lately. Um, yeah. But anyway, so the scope of immigration was, it wasn't just for the snowy hydro, it was for the defense of Australia and trying to get a greater population so we could have greater industries to, you know, create, manufacture weapons and tanks and have more abilities to defend ourselves on our own terms instead of being completely reliant on uh, the United Kingdom for our defense or anyone else for that matter. Um, it definitely didn't. Uh, it didn't bring an end to the, the the principle of a white Australia. Although there were some Chinese specialists that were brought to Australia uh, for Snowy Hydro, amongst other Asiatics, didn't uh, actually didn't formally bring an end to the policy that Australia was to remain populated by European descent people. So when did the white Australia policy come into uh, execution? On, on a mm -hmm. government level, I, I guess that was a federal government policy. That's right. Yeah, and I'm going to guess it was early 1900s, but I don't, I don't actually know. And do you want to give a little background on maybe why that was set up and when that happened? Yeah, and the circumstances around it. Yeah, sure. Well, um, in the uh, early colonial time of Australia, uh, in the 1830s. Uh, the first introduction of Polynesians uh, from the Pacific caused a bit of outrage. People were concerned about cannibalism, kind of uh, pagan religious practices, and the view that it was just detrimental to society. The first wave of Polynesians in the 1830s were sent home. <clears throat> then in the 1850s, around the time you had your California silver rush and the influx of Chinese to California, we were having an enormous gold rush in New South Wales and Victoria. We had a gold rush too, by the way. So, and, and there was silver uh, in actually a nearby state called Nevada, especially. Mm. Um, but I, I'm, I'm wondering if, if, uh, if that's, that's also the gold rush. But in any case, please continue. Because we had the same thing. Uh, Chinese laborers 
came to California mm. for that. That's right, yeah. So there was an enormous influx of Chinese to Australia in the 1850s and the 1860s. This led to a number of large, uh, <clears throat> best described as race riots on the gold fields where uh, basically white miners were fed up with being overrun with Chinese miners. Um, there were disputes about a whole range of different issues, but it was, it was principally just the feeling of displacement on the, on the minefields. Like in one instance <clears throat> at the Buckland River race riot, there were 500 Europeans in the district, 2,000 Chinese Europeans um, hadn't even built a church, but the, the Chinese had built themselves a temple. This caused a great uproar and resulted in the Europeans driving them out and burning everything down that the Chinese had constructed. So there were some early race riots in the colonies, and this led to the, 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 the first statesmen of the colonies in New South Wales and Victoria really cottoning on to this concept that there is no feasible way to have a, a multiracial uh, colony that the interests of these two different groups, their traditions, their institutions, their religion are too different, too discordant to be harmonized in the co colonial parliaments. And even just to maintain the peace and good order of the colony, it was necessary to bring an end to this thing. So the early colonial parliaments before Australia was federated as a country, these were the colonial parliaments They'd resolved to st stem the tide of Chinese migrants. New South Wales and Victoria made different legislation to this effect. Some of it was actually withheld by the Crown. The Crown refused um, some of this legislation passage. <clears throat> Obviously, they've um, been making inroads in Asia. They'd conquered India. They didn't want to offend Indians. They'd uh, conquered some districts in China. They didn't want to offend the Chinese. They were at the time, you know, trying to increase their relations with different countries in Asia, and they didn't want colonies in their own empire offending them by having immigration policies that prevented them from coming in. What ended up happening was in New South Wales, a poll tax was introduced where there was just a greater financial cost for Chinese migrants to come into the colony. And that did have some effect in uh, slowing down and reducing the influx of Chinese migrants. Um, but it did continue to trickle and trickle and trickle for years and years. And some states had no laws like this, uh, well, colonies, sorry, at the time. Queensland and South Australia had an open door system. And lots of Chinese would, would go into those colonies, then travel over the ungoverned land borders between the districts, and basically illegally immigrate into the colonies that didn't want them. They ended up taking over furniture industries, sugarcane. They started moving into shearing and mining. And uh, the Chinese laborers, obviously desperate, trying to incre increase their, their um, condition, you know, compared to what they had in China. They were willing to work for a bowl of rice a day. And uh, this was at a period where it was it was now recognized that to the European worker, it would be absolutely detrimental to their standard of living to continue to allow Chinese workers who are non-unionized scabs 
come in, take their work, do it at a you know a third of the price. So there was massive impact on wages, um, wage deflation, uh, and just safety conditions. The whole the whole story was basically a new cause for unionism, and the cause for a, a white man's trade unionism and a white democratic Australia, which uh, led to the Immigration Restriction Act in 1901. So that the colonies all federated in 1901. So there was a, a single unified border. So you wouldn't have any colonies break rank and let them in. Have a single unified border. And the first act of parliament, the first bill that was discussed in the new Australian parliament was the Immigration Restriction Act. And uh, that led to the white Australia policy as we know it. And uh, it was in 1955 that that was repealed formally as far as the legislation was concerned. However, the bureaucracy that had enforced the white Australia policy uh, was still at play and was still effective at their task up until 1972, 1973, <clears throat> when the Spanish descent Al Grasby, um, absolute traitor to the Commonwealth, uh, was put in charge of the immigration department, basically purged all of the good bureaucrats who were keeping Australia European descent. And uh, it was at that time, you could say that the policy was well and truly dead, both in manner and form. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I think you were, you were thinking and commenting on, on some of the parallels with the American experience as well with some of our immigration restrictions and repeals mm. uh, with not exactly, but a somewhat similar timeline. And it was, it was actually prior to the 1900s and the 1800s, I believe there was something called the Chinese exclusion act uh, concentrated primarily on what was going on in California. And that was broadened uh, a little bit later in the 19. 20s uh, to have immigration quotas for certain countries to try to balance out some of the mm. uh, the patterns that were showing up on the uh, on the two main islands in the United States that were handled uh, or tasked with handling immigrants. That was uh, Angel Island and Ellis Island. Those are two the, the two famous uh, embarkation points. But that also got taken away after the Second World War in the United States uh, in the 1960s. And it's, uh, it begs the question, these are two very distant lands. What is binding them together? Perhaps there's an unseen force here going, going on. Mm. Uh, but, you know, that, that's for maybe another, another time to discuss. Uh, I, do think, I do think it's fascinating, though, that Australia had maintained the policy for for so long, longer than the United States uh, even. And uh, we had a, we had a guest on our show. Um, he's a professor and he, he actually moved to Australia and he went there actually arguably for the reason that it was actually much like how the United States used to be. And it started mm. to change and he was looking for something more like that. And, and now, you know, we see where Australia is at and I don't know what the percentages are, but I, I happen to know from meeting them personally, there's a lot of uh, Asian people in Australia now that mm. were not there 30 years ago. So that, that has uh, been a marked change in your country and our country has also undergone quite a few changes as well. And 
Well, and maybe you could talk a little bit about your organization and, and why you got into all this. Um, mm. Perhaps that's that's a good uh, entry point for discussion of yeah. the Australian Natives Association. Yeah, sure. Well, um, the Australian Natives Association was founded in 1871. Uh, on the evening of April 24th of that year, a group of about 20 young men in the Victoria uh, colony in Melbourne met in the back of a hotel room basically agreed amongst themselves to create a fraternal organization which would advocate for the interests of native-born Australians and basically see to their welfare. This is at a time where <clears throat> in Australian society, if you, were in, if you were born in Australia, you were considered uh, a lesser class of, uh, of stock. You were considered what was called currency. People born in England were considered sterling. They were seen as more refined. They were regarded with a greater sense of dignity and honor and prestige, where the colonials or the currency were treated with kind of contempt. They were not afforded top roles in politics, top roles in law or industry, or in the military. So the, <clears throat> the Australian Natives Association, one of its core objects was to increase the dignity and the self-respect of native-born Australians, basically demonstrate that we were, in fact, cultured, capable people. <coughs> Excuse me. So, 1871, it grew and grew and grew for decades and decades. It was a leading hand behind Federation in 1901 to unify all the colonies with the view that federation was necessary both for a white Australia by having a single unified border and for the national defense of the country. A lot of people were concerned about the rise of Japan towards the start of the 20th century, and it was recognized that we needed to get our act together. So the Australian Natives Association continued in the 1960s through to the 1980s, <coughs> It predominantly started to fall off with the baby boomer generation being very enlightened and uh, disregarding this, this association, which still held true to its founding principles of having an enlightened, self-reliant national um, government, a wide Australia, you know, the, the cultivation of Australian art, literature, music, industry. It began to taper off and die. It, it eventually, a lot of its assets rolled over into an insurance company, which still exists in Australia, but has no patriotic objectives other than helping people via insurance. And uh, <clears throat> there were some branches that were holdouts into the early 2000s that began winding up and dying. And uh, in 2015, uh, we began to create a new form of the Australian Natives Association to really take up the mantle, retake possession of the of the label and the, the founding beliefs, a model of governments that the ANA had kind of had done for our, our, our country. We revived it. I guess how I came into it is uh, when, when I was, you know, when I was a teenager, I had, I had moved between different districts I'd lived in uh, in Canberra in the capital 
then moved to some remote districts and saw in very <clears throat> very basic terms the difference in people, the difference in society that was caused by ethnic diversity. So when I was in the city, it was, you know, predominantly there was a lot of uh, Asiatics uh, in Canberra. And I believe that, you know, when I'd reached the country and, and lived in a homogenous community, I'd realized the heightened sense of community, the heightened sense of belonging, trust, common identity, purpose, and all those things were more meaningfully felt in the community, unlike the, uh, the diverse urban hellscape. And upon kind of coming to that realization, you know, I, I was thinking more about politics more broadly. I'd read extensively uh, across, you know, across the English-speaking world. You know, I'd, I had read a lot of American works. You know, <clears throat> I'd read and listened to a lot of, um, of George Lincoln Rockwell and um, started traveling down that, that, that rabbit hole and was fortunate enough to be, to be given a good stack of Australian literature and come to the, the very bland and um, real understanding that Australia's political heritage perhaps is in fact the greatest uh, nationalist political heritage um, by comparison to any other country in the world. That in fact, the, the, the concept of a white Australia, which was espoused uh, by our colonies, in fact, went on to inspire the United States. So. You mentioned your Immigration Restriction Act on the on the national level. <clears throat> Teddy Roosevelt bought a whole stack of copies of a book written by an Australian author called Charles Pearson. He wrote a book in 1894 called National Life and, and Character, which basically forecasted the end of uh, the empires in, in the Pacific and the rise of Asia and the rise of Africa in post-colonial uh, hardship that was that was destined for European countries, and uh, he talked a lot about why Australia valued so sacredly the policy of a white Australia, and why Englishmen found it hard to understand. Obviously, they never had to rub shoulders with with the hordes of Asiatics. Anyway, Teddy Roosevelt reviews this book, buys a copy for every member of Congress, and a few years later, they're um, they're rolling out their immigration restriction. Um, platform on the national scale. There is a bit of an interesting crossover there with the United States, <clears throat> but it also gives me the credence to say that we invented nationalism, at least on a racial scale. <laughs> so when I uh, when I when I'm picking up these these American authors and and European nationalist thinkers, I, I really um, realize that in fact we'd pioneered so much of this stuff out of necessity. Um, and, you know, got, got interested in Australian politics and, um, you know, many years later and through many trials and tribulations, um, here we are. Well, the, the pertinent statistic that I was able to find from Wikipedia for whatever that's worth, it's not, it's not breaking it down by the region of origin, but at least in terms of whether they were born in Australia or not. Uh, apparently, Australia now is one third of the population is foreign born, which, uh, is an astounding number. Uh, you know, not, not, uh, you know, until the 1980s was actually the, the number of, uh, 
Australia, less than 90% white. Now, I don't know how many of those were foreign born, but uh, the demographics have, have clearly shifted. And I believe the, like I said, the, and you have said the majority of those foreign born are coming from Asia, which would make some sense given the proximity mm. of your country to that part of the world. Um, how how is your that... relationship with your neighbors? But, but go ahead, please. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's right. I'll, I'll answer that in a sec. I would say, um, I would say with those statistics that a, a large percentage of that one third would in fact still be Europeans that were just born in Europe. Um, I think that the pro- if I were to have honest estimates, the proportion of Asians or, or non-Europeans in Australia that are actually uh, permanent residents or citizens, I believe would be less than 20%, probably more around 15%. It feels like it's a lot worse than that, but I think the majority probably in the, of this, in the big cities, though, is, is yeah, a, is in my the big assumption. cities, yeah. and and I think there are in fact more. There probably is around thirty percent non-Europeans in Australia. However, the the larger portion of them are here as temporary visa holders, as students, or on business visas, um, without the anticipation that they'll become permanent residents or citizens. So it feels worse than it actually is. But it, when it when it comes to fully bona fide citizens who are able to vote, <clears throat> I would say it is around the, the fifteen to twenty percent mark for non Europeans. Yeah, that, that's that's actually somewhat comparable to the United States in terms of the percentages. Mm. Um, how is your organization regarded? I, I mean, you mentioned prior to the show you you had been you've been doxxed. I'm assuming mm. that's because they have maybe something critical to, uh, mm. to say about what you and your organization are, are doing, but what, what can you talk about with regard to the rights you have, frankly, as mm. you know, a, a free people to organize into a peaceful organization versus an unpopular you know, opinion or, or what, what are, what are the, what is the relationship you have with your own countrymen with, with your organization? Mm. I guess is my question. Yeah, there's a, there's a few things to unpack in there. Um, so I was always uh, of the opinion. So I, I got into this when I was right out of high school, right? Um, and I had always I had formed the view, you know, in my pre-activism uh, days when I was, you know, a, a teenager browsing slash poll, as you do. I uh, formed the opinion that I, if I was ever going to do anything, it would be with my full name and face, and I would never use a pseudonym. I would never conceal my identity, and I'd never deceive anyone. I would never play the game. I would always just, uh, you know, put my flag in the ground, say exactly what I believe, and uh, and that's it. And that way, whether people like me or or hate me, at least they know there's no deception. And at least there's credibility to what I say. I, I found a lot of people had discredited themselves, you know, if you're, you know, kind of unwilling to, particularly people in leadership, I'll, I'll put it, that, that's probably the most pertinent way of looking at it. If you want to be in, involved in leading anything and you're unwilling to put your face and name to it, I feel like, uh, you know, how, how much do people really take you seriously? Obviously, with the knowledge that there's risks to you by putting your face and name out there. If you're unwilling to say what you believe, 
you know, how, how willing are other people going to be to say that what you believe really matters, you know? Um, that's the way I always saw it. Obviously, there's nuances to the subject. But uh, when I first got into things, yeah, it was full name and face. I um, This is during the height of the Islamic, um, you know, paranoia where there was concerns that, you know, the, the Islamic population was going to outbreed everyone else and they were going to effectively take over the Commonwealth. And um, this was kosher politics. You know, the media was to- totally allowed to talk about Islamic issues. And there were terrorist attacks in Australia where lots of innocent people were killed by Islamic people. <clears throat> and um, that created a platform um, across Australia where there were a lot of people that were talking about the Islamic immigration issue. Um, I never really uh, had much of an issue um, per se with Islamic immigration, but more so with non-European immigration of all stripes. And so I uh, gave some speeches at some different rallies across Australia in the early days in defense of this this concept of having a, a homogenous ethno cultural uh, nation, you know, a national community that shares the, the bonds of their heritage, shares their institutions and shares a, a common destiny. Gave some uh, interviews to the media in defense of the policy of a white Australia and, um, you know, always reiterated the fact that as our founders believed in Australia, you know, the policy of a white Australia is based on on policy grounds. You know, we we base this this idea on having a national community, having the, the, the greatest sense of common identity, purpose and belonging to protect our standard of living against the exploitation of cheap, foreign, non-unionized labor and to create for ourselves a harmonious and peaceful commonwealth, you know, which we can wish the goodwill, goodwill of all other nations. You know, we believed regardless of the, the, the policy platform that people should be treated with basic dignity even if we do consider that they should be sent back to their home country, as was done in you know the early 1900s with the Pacific Islander Labourers Act. There was enormous repatriation of non-Europeans um, with some money to get them started in, back in their, their native lands. So, you know, these are our, our platform policies. I suppose we, we, we culturally differ from um, a lot of other, I suppose, more spectacle-seeking groups, which um, you know, enjoy the race baiting um, and the trolling, like the hate, the hate trolling, <clears throat> where um, that doesn't really interest me and doesn't really interest the people in the ANA. Um, I suppose we're we're far more on the the committed line of taking things seriously, representing our views and not discrediting ourselves um, by seeking spectacle, by trolling. So in terms of our reputation amongst the community, um, I would say that it, it, it is not unreasonable. Um, in my dealings with media and journalists over the years, uh, I've found them to be at least halfway reasonable. Um, but, you know, I did, I did get a, a recent write-up by one journalist I found, I found was was pretty unsavory because it had, it had tailed us on the end of a big article about neo-Nazis and how the state intelligence services had identified them as a live security threat to the public. And then, uh, in, in, uh, and then, and then other groups 
like the Australian Natives Association, like just creating this kind of nexus between us and them, um, I thought was was quite unfortunate. But generally, uh, interactions with the state and the media have all been quite reasonable. And I think that is just because, I mean, there are uh, there are a number of reasons. Obviously, the cultural things I mentioned um, were a bit more of a sane, um, peace-loving organization. Uh, in the same same breath, we we also believe in our the political heritage of the Commonwealth of Australia. We aren't seditious uh, revolutionaries. It's not part of our platform <clears throat> to plot and scheme the downfall of the Commonwealth government and the Parliament. A lot of us believe in parliamentarianism as much as it's been harmed by the subversion of the of the of the nation. Um, as, a, as a model of, of governments generally, we think it's good to prevent the abuses of power of, um, of kings or dictators or despots or oligarchs, um, you know, and that, and that goes to the root of how we organize as well. We're, we're a democratic organization where every member can cast a vote and elect their, their representative committee every year, which is effectively the government of the ANA. Every member has rights to appeal. Every member has rights to access the financial records of the association. Every member is afforded the opportunity to have disputes resolved. Every member is is protected against the abuses of power and uh, corruption that we'd seen in lots of other nationalist groups, not only in Australia, but across the world. So our model of government is very different as well, which encourages the growth of new leaders, capable people in the association. Our association is not necessarily an activist one. It's more interested in <coughs> building up a cadre of capable men, pillars in their community, men of family, men who are employed, men who are educated and capable. I always mention Cicero. You might know Cicero, one of the last consuls before the death of the Roman Republic. He was very, uh, he was very, uh, he, he spoke about a class of intellectuals in his time who said uh, that, you know, we don't believe in government. We think government's gay and cringe. But when the collapse comes, we'll, we'll take charge of government and we'll immediately be competent leaders and managers. Cicero was of the view if you want to help your help the state and help the nation, you need to be competent in government by practice. So we practice that in the ANA, even though we aren't necessarily part of the government of the state. The methods of how we organize people, resources, and effort and energy uh, in the same alignment to how a government would be run. So in, in any in any stretch, we can Im improve the skills and the wisdom for governments uh, in the association. Um, but yeah, that's um, that's a bit of a rundown of that. We, you know, we we have three different branches um, in three different districts of Australia. Um, you know, our our membership is is less than a hundred people. However, they're all of good quality stock. We've never been interested in bringing people in on mass or handing out our brand to anyone who puts their hand out to say they want to do something. Um, we believe in quality and perseverance. Obviously, we've been operating now for almost a decade, which is a lot longer than many other organizations, which seem to rise and fall 
like a flash in a pan. What, what regions of Australia have you drawn most of your support? And do you find that uh, there are specific cities that are either more hostile or more supportive, maybe not just to your organization, but to the concepts of nativism in general? Are there sort of regions and cities that are amenable to that? I don't think so. I I do think we fall along the similar lines as everyone else, that the more hostile a place is to concepts of Australia, the more hostile a place is to uh, our, our heritage and our culture, the more people are going to wake up and realise what's going on. If you're comfortable, you don't really... You're never really compelled to come to these conclusions, particularly when... Uh, it's uncomfortable to do so, especially when you expose yourself to risk. You know, the man, the man who's willing to expose himself to risk by, by virtue of being in a, a political association, which is, you know, ev- evidently frowned upon because we believe in archaic ideals like national community and culture. Um, you have to be willing to do that, which means you're off, you're often in a place where you've been greatly offended or you've, you've, you've found yourself compelled by your spirit to, to, to do something because you've seen the, the pure face of evil. So we are centred in, in, in some of the main cities, Melbourne, Canberra, and Brisbane, which is some of the places where you will find the most hostility to Australia's heritage, which does compel in the ordinary person to reflect upon these subjects more broadly and then find their way to us. Um, there are some places where there, there, there is those same conditions. However, due to other factors, um, we, we just don't have anything running. It, one of the big challenges for us is finding competent leadership. Like we will only start a branch when we found someone who is the outstanding model leader that we desire to represent our organization. You know, a, an employed family man is generally what we go for. Um, ideally, you know, someone who, who holds property and holds a, a respectable profession who's beyond vice and disreputation in the community. And those, those characteristics are, are quite hard to find these days, as you'd imagine. But we've always gone with the vision that whoever leads a branch should be someone that all the young men in the branch can look up to as a role model um, and who demands the respect of the members of the branch to try and encourage them to take themselves seriously and to do good in the community. When when did this this cultural shift really begin, and how how sharp was the heel turn? Was it immediately after the end of the White Australia policy, or was mm. it a far more gradual uh, sort of overcoming of, of you know nativism and the archaic mm. ideas, as you're saying? How long did it really take, and what was that? process like in australia mm. i guess there's there's multiple forks to it um so as i said before there's the whole currency and sterling divide between native australians and british uh, people in australia and that cultural conflict never really died until probably the 1960s i would say so there was always you know this when we talk about concepts of nativism we're talking about the advocacy for the native-born culture and worldview of Australians 
which you know we believe there was an ethnogenesis in Australia that the people of British stock who came here over years and generations of hardship and isolation and you know as our one of our writers Percy Stevenson places it that that culture is uh, a, a a product of race and place we believe there was an ethnogenesis and the native born Australians the true Australian nation was constantly in a spiritual battle with the British born loyalists to the United Kingdom. And because of their population demographics in the cities in Australian history, they were, you know, heavily dominated by people born in Britain who didn't necessarily see themselves as Australians, you know, until the second or third generation. So there's been a there's been a, an age old ethereal battle between native Australians and uh, Britishers on a spiritual level, and then by the end of World War II, in come the Mediterraneans and the Continentals, and the Continentals integrated quite well. French, Germans, uh, Scandinavians, they became Australians unquestionably. The Italians and the Greeks, however, um, did not assimilate and uh, they were allowed to form their own ethnic enclaves. And so you began to see the breakdown of a homogenous Australia um, and more, I mean, even between the Australian and the British cultures, even though they were at conflict, they were still similar in a lot of ways. It was less obvious. However, with the Greeks and Italians, <clears throat> things got interesting. And then probably around the 1980s, uh, that's when we started having Asiatics begin coming to Australia. But it was at a very low rate. Our immigration intake annually uh, until the early 2000s was around about 100,000 people uh, per year. And a lot of those were still Europeans, um, just by natural consequence of the fact Europeans loved settling in Australia, had good weather, good wages, good standard of living. It was really in probably the mid 2000s that everything started coming off the rails, both culturally and uh, demographically. I think uh, the 80s were, the, were, were probably the peak time for the flowering of Australian. Um, it had kind of, there was some degradation in Australian culture by that time, but it was the proudest and most prominent it had ever been. You know, we'd, we'd won America's cup, you know, we'd, uh, we'd, we'd pioneered our own kind of political philosophy and started going our own way. And, and then by the time the early two thousands had rolled around American media, I think had finally paid its full toll. And, uh, the average Australian had lost their true sense of Australianity, I suppose. They'd lost their their sense of belonging and identity with Australia and really be this kind of individualist, uh, denationalized, slippery slide continued to roll from the early 2000s. And with that came the additional immigration numbers from Asia uh, so the cities became increasingly heterogeneous. They continuously lost any sense of community, trust and belonging. And it's just been a very slow slide. I mean, obviously, the, the cultural 
like issues have really rapidly blown out of control uh, in the last decade, probably thanks to um, the internet. But yeah, that's that's my view on it anyway. It has been a, a pretty gradual slide, but there has always been this kind of eternal struggle for the the mind of, of people in Australia and trying to do justice to Australia's native heritage, I suppose. You know, this a lot, a lot of what you're uh, speaking to here reminds me very deeply of South Africa, uh, down to what would you call it? The Sterling divide. What, mm. the, the, the Cur- currency and Sterling the currency and Sterling, uh, identical to you know the experience between the Boers and uh, uh, you know, the Randstad and, uh, and and the British or Anglo-British uh, mm. South Africans. Um, so I mean, much worse. You know, it came to war in, several times in South Africa. Did this shared experience sort of impact Australia's? Uh, long-time support of apartheid South Africa. I mean, for a while, mm. Australia was the only uh, major country that provided any kind of support um, to South Africa in, in the Cold War. Was, was it due to this sort of similar shared experience or or what was yeah. behind that motivation, maybe? It's quite an interesting bit of history, actually. Um, the Natal colony in South Africa Around the time our parliaments were resolving to have immigration controls in the colonies around the 1860s, the 1880s, the colony of Natal um, in South Africa also tried to have their own racial policy, which was in fact um, was denied by the British Parliament and the Crown. Um, and definitely, I think we shared, we do share a lot of parallels with South Africa, um, like the fact that the the South Africans colonized basically completely empty territory and are now at the receiving end of you stole our land from people who weren't even there in the first place. Precisely. Yeah, in the same way Australia, right? Like you had very far distant, tiny population, indigenous tribes who are now claiming complete ownership over the entire continent even though there's there's large districts where they'd probably never even walked before or if they'd walked they had walked alone and not had meaningly meaningfully possessed and used the land but anyway that's a subject for another day john norton was this uh, member of the legislative assembly in new south wales in 1905 and he talks about the the boer war so obviously this conflict you mentioned between the english and the Boers, John Norton was of the view that um, I'll, I'll actually just quote him for you because it's it's a bit of a banger. Um, he says, "The greatest menace to the white race was not the cheapness and the nastiness of the coloured man, but his industry and enterprise, and above all, that which the white man has no sense of: his racial and national national solidarity." The Boer War. We were told that we were to fight for our country. We bled and died. And with what result? 50,000 Chinese slaves now work on the land for a handful of rice, metaphorically speaking, where a great and prosperous white mining community had flourished in the continent and peace until Chamberlain compired with the, conspired 
with the Park Lane and the Johannesburg Jew gang to the use of resources, moral, political and military of the great wide British Empire to wipe out British labor and bring in chows. Um, <laughs> so John Norton talks about he was of the view that this whole uh, this was another another gold rush in uh, South Africa at the time. And uh, it was in the interests of the financiers of London to maintain control over the new newfound gold wealth of South Africa and use Chinese scab labor to do it. Like that is another massive parallel with Australia, like around the 1880s, 1890s financial interests were using Chinese labor to displace Australian white labor for a, a fraction of the cost. Fortunately though, uh, in Australia, we had the great Shearer's strike in 1891, which was like the, the biggest outpouring of this outrage, which led to the Australian workers union being formed and its policy platform of a white Australia and led to the, the, the foundation of the Australian Labor Party, which also had in their first plank a white Australia, because the financial interests of the time were relying on cheap Chinese labor to you know, increase their margins at the, at the full cost with no care for how it affected Australian society. So obviously South Africa, they have their, their Boer War to defend their, their rights, basically. They're, they were expecting the British to invade, and uh, they, just made, they just made an absolutely brutal... Um, they, they, uh, they, w w what's the, the best defense is offense, so they attacked first and smashed the British army in the first round. Ended up being that most of the soldiers sent to South Africa to, to crush the Boers were Australians, because <clears throat> at that time... Australians represented the only men of strength and uh, bush hardiness in the, in, the, in the empire. The men of England were just incapable of fighting in South Africa because it was, it was a hot, rugged climate. We were out in the bush on horseback, sleeping in a swag. The kind of war that was fought in South Africa was quite unlike a, a standard uh, European war. It was more of a guerrilla war by the end of it which they needed Australians to fight. And obviously we won and we crushed the Boers, unfortunately. And, you know, more than 20,000 Boers were killed in concentration camps by Chamberlain and the, the, the British Parliament, basically. I believe they're the morally culpable ones for it. And uh, I forgot where we were going with this, but there's, <laughs> there's, well, a, lot think, of there's a lot of parallels, no yeah, doubt. I think talking about the parallels and some of that is fascinating history that I, I didn't even know, uh, especially with regards to the Australian involvement inside of uh, inside of South Africa. But mm. I, I think I was curious, uh, really, what was a lot of the shared history and shared parallels, what ultimately uh, motivated uh, Australia to become South Africa's really only longstanding partner almost to the end? Mm. I mean, really almost to the end of apartheid was the only country providing diplomatic support, trade, uh, you know, was really the only one comfortable with uh, with both Rhodesia and South Africa. What really motivated that? And was it did it really just boil down to, you know, we're the, the last three holdouts that are sort of trying to practice something akin to a whites only policy? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we at the time, 
Um, yeah, Sir Robert Menzies was the Prime Minister for quite a long period of time, and he was reasonably supportive of the regime in South Africa. I think it's because we obviously, Australia and South Africa, you know, we we shared a common history. You know, obviously we we defended them against the Boers and crushed the Boers on their behalf, and we'd also had a, a very raw appreciation for issues of, of race. And I think that was why we lent support to them for so long, um, even though the rest of the world had, had turned their back on them. It did, however, lead to a, a, an unforgivable betrayal uh, when Rhodesia fell apart into Zimbabwe. Our then Prime Minister, I believe it was um, Andrew Fraser, after Gough Whitlam, um, they actually pr- refused visas to Rhodesians, um, which was just unforgivable, in my opinion. Uh, he was the, who was it? Malcolm Fraser, sorry, not Andrew Fraser. Malcolm Fraser was the prime minister at the time. And he was very good mates with Mugabe and um, basically just spat on the survival of, uh, of Rhodesians that were trying to escape the absolute hell which was created with the fall of Rhodesia. I, in fact, met a lot of these people in a Dutch Reformed church I used to go to. <clears throat> a lot of them did end up coming to Australia over the years and um, remember that period very vividly. But yeah, I think it is that shared appreciation for racial issues, which people in Europe just didn't understand at the time because they had enjoyed the fruits of homogeneity for so long that all issues of race were in some far off place where, you know, they have the, the privilege of, of being able to make a hot, hot take on it without having to actually live with the consequences of their opinions on, on, on racial law. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my view on that anyway. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned riots. Uh, there's an infamous incident from a recent are you familiar with the Cronulla race rights? Am I saying that right? Cronulla? Oh, Cronulla. Yeah, yeah, Cronulla. yeah. I am familiar with Cronulla. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, definitely made the rounds many times. There's some uh, interesting bit of footage. Mm. What is the background on the Cronulla race riots? Uh, it, it's mm. a, a white-led race riot in uh, the mid-aughts. Is, I mean, Australia probably has the, is the only country that uh, has managed to do that other than maybe the canadians during hockey season yeah yeah um yeah unbelievable event in in a lead up to it and that this is my view anyway there were a lot so there had been a lot of lebanese and middle eastern diaspora that had settled in sydney right a lot of them had in, had been involved in crime you know things like petty theft home invasion And then there was a lot of scandal around the time of Cronulla where there were a lot of sexual assaults and rapes done by Middle Eastern um, and uh, I suppose Mediterranean people against Australian girls. And uh, a lot of people were talking about it. You know, it was common dinner table discussion about these crimes that had been committed against Australians. People were, you know, kind of upset about it. It was on talkback radio a lot. It was, you know, it was kind of floating up a bit in the media, just the talking about the, the rapes, you know, the rapes were the real thing that were kind of pushing the limit. Then one fateful day on a beach, um, Cronulla Beach, um, a lifesaver 
Um, so life's, I don't know if you have them in the United States, but the, the people that sit on the beach and make sure no one drowns, they're like a volunteer group. Yeah, lifeguard. Lifeguard, yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so lifeguard, lifesaver gets beaten up by a bunch of, of um, you know, what's believed to be Lebanese people. Or, you know, these, we'll call them meds, Mediterraneans. Um, and what happened was is... Um, Basically, that felt like an attack on territory to like the surfer crowd. So they had a real surf culture in Cronulla, right? And all the surfers hear that this lifeguard had just been beaten up. And um, the text messages start spreading. Boom, 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 boom. Come down to the beach. We've got to help this lifeguard out. And then those text messages spread to other people. And those text messages spread to other people and other people and other people. And within a matter of hours, thousands of people had poured down to this beach and indiscriminately anyone of Middle Eastern appearance was just driven off the streets, you know, bashed, things were thrown at them. Um, you know, the general outrage around all these other issues, like the rapes and the crime, had finally boiled over because of the beating up of a lifeguard. And this, this um, civil unrest continued for like a couple of days. It took wasn't like a an afternoon affair it actually took took a couple of days for the police to <coughs> restore order because every police car that went in was just getting blanketed with bricks and bottles and because people were outraged at law enforcement as well because it was the, the the opinion of people that law enforcement were not doing their duty in preventing these crimes which were being committed against them um by by these you know Mediterranean descent people. So that is the synopsis of the Cronulla riots. Um, now the media would have you believe that everyone was just drunk and there was no logic behind it, just some random event of violence. But in actual fact, I believe it was a widespread civil unrest caused by the, the view of people that they were being victimized by a foreign, you know, group that were being brought in and were not being managed by the police, that they, that there was a, a necessity to drive them out of Cronulla to keep the area safe. Well, in a parallel to, uh, you made a, you made a, a parallel to Britain earlier and you mentioned mm. that during the Boer war, you know, the, the English men were regarded as, uh, a fet and not capable of, uh, of some kind of mm. energy, you know, some vitality. And there's these stories are mentioning, you know, people are talking about it in kind of hushed tones about rapes and organized rapes and attacks. And there's, you know, there's some level of conspiracy to this. Uh, the same kind of thing went on for years. I mean, not, not just, you know, for brief spite, but for years mm. in the UK and Rotherham and infamous, you know, mm. and uh, no, no riots. So I, I don't know if, if Aussies would riot today if the same thing were to happen. Yeah, look, I think Rotherham is like re reasonably rural too. I, right. I would, I wouldn't doubt if that happened here that there would have been riots. Like, like the, yeah. the UK, the men there are just cowards. I just well, like it, it seems <laughs> to me like, and you mentioned something earlier that I also wanted to ask you about through the security services mm. you you seem to indicate that the government and the media in australia well not necessarily um 
in favor of your position are more amenable to work with, or at least not actively difficult. Whereas in yeah. the UK, you know, the government in particular is uh, completely, uh, I mean, really draconian. You know, that word gets thrown around a lot, but mm. truly a draconian nightmare. Uh, and the media seems to work very tightly with the government in, in the UK. And I think that would you kind of come to the same conclusion that perhaps there would be a little bit more room to maneuver in Australia because people know, okay, the government is not as extreme here and you know, they're mm. not out of control. Well, I, I, yeah, not to reignite the uh, optics wars, um, <laughs> but the people in Australia who role play as Nazis from 1930s Germany, um, they get absolutely smashed by the state. Um, they get police beating their doors down, MP5s pointed at pregnant women, um, media is all over them. Like it's, it is basically like the UK for those yeah. pedigree of people. Um, and, and that also goes to the way they conduct themselves and the, 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 their activism is a lot more in your face, I suppose, where we are a much less in your face organization. Like we will, provide comment to the media on a, on the policy of a white Australia and, and never kowtow to, to compromise. But we also don't wear black, you know, bandanas and we don't go into a cave and film yeah. ourselves doing Roman salutes and yelling Ku Klux Klan at a camera three times for some reason. I think that's what's so so memorable about the Cronulla riots is that, it, you know, I encourage people to watch the footage it really is, like you said, it's surfers. Yeah. I mean, guys with no shirt or maybe a white T-shirt and, the, and, and swim trunks, <laughs> you know, like. On yeah, the, just on instinct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah like these, these guys aren't it's like, it's like Point Break, if you've ever seen that movie. Right. It, I mean, it's like 5,000 Patrick Swayze showed up. And, you know, basically long hair and, you know, a little too tanned. But you're not seeing anyone with some kind of like Stahlhelm, uh, you know, LARP going on down there. It, it, yeah. Much more normal than, than yeah, exactly. There, there were, there were Australian flags flying over Cronulla yeah. and not swastikas, you know? So, Precisely. Yeah. Uh, like I, I wanted to ask a question. Yeah. Um, yep. in the United States, riots are usually associated with non-whites. I mean, mm. let's just be blunt about it. Black lives matter. LA riots, Baltimore riots, Chicago riots, mm. it all has the same group doing it. And in this case, it seems to be the reverse, which is interesting on, yeah. on its face. But what, what I was getting to is a broader issue, I think, in the Western world, and especially countries that grew up with a heritage of being on a frontier, where this made actually a hell of a lot of sense from a practical standpoint, and that is the issue of gun rights. And mm. my understanding in Australia is you no longer have any gun rights. And New Zealand, mm. not too far away from you, just got rid of those. And in the United States, they've been trying to get rid of them for God knows how long. But every decade, every few years, there's, there's some other call for getting rid of people's guns. And in situations like the riots that we experience, that's often the only way you're going to defend yourself. And it's gotten to the point mm. where store owners in the United States and especially liberal cities are not able to stop shoplifters who are ransacking uh, the major cities, uh, convenience stores of anything under 
$1,000 and worth because in places like California, it is illegal to stop them from doing anything. And the government is not allowed to prosecute on a, on a felonious level uh, any of these thefts. And so mm. there are videos of people beating, like there was a, an Indian store owner, a, a Sikh uh, of the Sikh sect, who was yeah, be- beating a, a black guy with a stick. And there was a black yeah. guy filming it, and he was cheering it on. I mean, it's just such a, a mess in this country at this point. But oftentimes, you, if you're a small person or if the attacker is just extraordinarily large, you need a firearm to defend yourself. And mm-hmm. historically, you would use guns to hunt. You would use guns to fight off people who were trying to attack you in the middle of the night because it was so far away for the local law enforcement to do anything. You really mm-hmm. didn't have any, any choice. And even in an urban environment, realistically, if somebody's breaking into your home, you can't call the police and ask the invader to wait until we settle this. They're going to attack you. So you have to have a means of defending yourself. So yeah. I'm very pro self-defense and guns. But what what has gone on in Australia? What was the... Uh, mm. the, the reason for getting rid of these rights, uh, my understanding is you can't have a gun and maybe you can have a, a license or something. But in Canada, you have to have very particular licenses to even get the right to go hunting and you can't own really anything otherwise. And my understanding is Australia mm. just doesn't, doesn't have that right at all. So I wanted to hear no, what your no, thoughts yeah. were. Yeah, I think it's funny. Uh, the American libtard froths so heavily over Australian gun law that the actual truth gets lost in the matter. So there's actually over a million privately owned firearms in Australia, which means for every, you know, 20 people, there's a, there's a rifle. Um, in fact, there's, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of people in Australia that are licensed to own firearms, the difference, the main difference in the point of law is you need to be licensed by the police, which says you're a, frit, you're a fit and proper person to own a firearm. We don't think, you know, you don't have any medical schizophrenic condition which prevents you from doing it or you haven't evinced any terrorist intentions. And then you have a the licensing, you have different classes of licenses for different kinds of firearms. So there's like a, a particular license you require for a handgun. There's a particular license you require for a rifle. However, you have to have a genuine reason for having a rifle. You can't just own one for wanting one. And self-defense is not a genuine reason to own a firearm. A genuine reason is sport shooting, hunting, pest control, or for historical like memorabilia. But you have to have that. You have to be part of a club to basically prove that you have a genuine reason under one of these categories. Now, if you do possess a firearm, and before one of these other genuine reasons and someone happens to break into your house and, uh, you know, put you, put your life in danger, you are lawfully allowed to use the firearm in self-defense. So in, in the, in the crimes act of New South Wales says that self-defense has to be reasonable and necessary. You can't use it for the protection of property, but you can use it for the protection of life and Liberty. So if someone is threatening to kidnap your child and has, you know, is about to grab them um, and you shoot them, the question would be in court for a jury to decide, was that amount of force reasonable and necessary? So there is cases in Australia, you know, in recent time where someone has used a firearm in self-defense 
and they have not been convicted of a, cr- a crime. They've been acquitted on the grounds of self-defense because a jury found that it was reasonable and necessary. There are, however, cases where someone has used a firearm, you know, someone someone walked up to them in their house, you know, no knife in hand, no gun in hand, you know, like an unarmed home invader, and they were shot, and the, and the jury would find that perhaps that, that was, you know, an unreasonable escalation of force. So the law is a bit more nuanced than uh, what the American libtard would have you believe. Um, and there are a lot of firearm owners in Australia. Um, I'm one of them myself. I use it for recreational hunting and um, harvesting meat and things of the like. But yeah, well, One of those genuine of... purposes. Yeah, yeah, genuine purpose. That's right. So um, it, it's, a bit un- it's a bit unfortunate the government requires that you have a, a – that self-defense is not a genuine purpose. Like to me, that yeah. is just an outrage. It, it seems um, ridiculous. But, but you, defi- you definitely can get firearms in Australia – it's not as bad as they would have you believe, I suppose. What is it the all... like in Australia? Sorry? What is the hunting like in Australia? Yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, quite good. There was... Um... Kangaroos? What do you go after? Oh, kangaroos. <laughs> yeah, technically you're not allowed to kill kangaroos. Ah, um, figures. And the, the meat tastes terrible. Um, it's, it's, no. <laughs> it's not good. Um, right. But there is a lot of deer well, in cool. Australia. A lot of deer. Um, so deer were introduced to Australia for the purpose of hunting. And they have since grown absolutely to apocalyptic levels of population. What do, like there's, You guys got to have crocodiles, right? There was crocodile hunter on television. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Up in the Northern Territory, um, uh, there's no crocodiles down my way. Right. Um, I don't think you can hunt them Thankfully. either, unless unless you're an Aboriginal, in which case you're allowed to hunt. Whatever That's strange you want. because you can you can I, I I don't know if it's considered hunting, but I've had alligator in mm. the United States. In the southern parts of the United States, we have alligators, not crocodiles. But it's uh, I think not you, a can, big deal. you can you yeah. can you can farm them, you can farm them and harvest them, but you can't hunt them in a wild in the wild. I, I believe. Yeah, um, but yeah, it, the, yeah, the gun rights issue is 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 a hot one. Um, and obviously, yeah, like I'm of the I'm of the view, you know, this is me being a, a, a filthy Australian, um, that the law is, I I think not, it's not all bad. I I don't hate the licensing system um, so long as it's not abused. There has been cases where the police have tried to say. Oh, someone has some esoteric political belief. Yeah. We don't think we don't think he's a fit and proper person. And um, there's been a, a few very good lawyers in Australia that have managed to get those things quashed in the court uh, in administrative review. Basically, to prove that someone's not a fit and proper person, you have to have very solid evidence that they're actually a credible threat to society by having a firearm. It's not just the vibe, you know. Oh, this guy. This guy reads the naughty books or whatever. There's got to be more to it than that on in terms of hard evidence. Um, so that that bit is fair. The main gripe I have is well, the main gripes is the whole um, self-defense is not a genuine reason to own a firearm. To me, that's stupid. And the second thing is actually the the limitations on the firearms you're allowed to get. So semi-automatic rifles are only available with a special license class um, for for basically for professionals who use it for commercial pest eradication, like people who are paid to go and kill pigs, they can have semi-automatics, but everyone else, you can only get a lever action rifle or, mm. or a bolt action rifle. 
yeah. that's interesting. I, I was going to ask you earlier about the relationship Australia has. Well, that's that's sort of how do you how do you make such a generalized statement? I mean, every individual has mm. maybe perhaps a different view. Maybe your organization has a different view. But on the whole, if possible, how would you describe Australia's relationship with your neighbors? Uh, we were talking about mm. the uh, Islamic quote-unquote threat earlier mm. and the only instance i remember of that region ever being an issue was um it was bali i think and there was mm. there was a bombing and it's not australia mm. but it, it's sort of in the region and i don't remember if that's indonesia or if, if that's malaysia i mean I, I get them mixed up but it's it's interesting to me how that coincided with of course, the U.S. and Britain's war on terror, and I haven't heard of too many terrorist bombings lately. Have you? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can you can fill in the the blanks on that. I think it I think it asks raises the question as to maybe that was uh, part of the war on terror as mm-hmm. uh, a, a cause celeb to get people to support you know the that type of uh, military action yeah. and maybe some of that was not actually genuine but um the, the other thing i was just going to mention about your neighbors is uh and and you had talked uh, privately about how uh, guinea or uh, new guinea had become sort of a temporary part of australia at one point mm. that was kind of a part of history i wasn't familiar with but the, the last thing i was just going to mention i thought was was pertinent in addition to the the obvious points about World War II and the Japanese threats, uh, was the, the immigration policies of Singapore and the racial policies of Singapore and Malaysia, which are your neighbors, are actually, I think, mm-hmm. very similar to what the white Australian policy uh, was <laughs> about. Uh, Singapore, for example, has a racial quota for immigration where they try to keep the proportions of the Chinese, the Indian and the other, other populations relatively stable. Uh, and Lee Kuan Yew is principally the driving force behind that to my knowledge in that he observed that if people are allowed to just come and go as they please, they don't really vote on policies. They vote primarily with their, their racial uh, mm. groups, at least if they're in a heterogeneous society. Uh, and he was trying to avoid that. And he tried to basically just compromise and say, well, let's just keep it the where it is. And then in Malaysia, they have a very explicit, uh, one might call it anti-Chinese, but they have a very explicit pro-Malaysian policy to the exclusion of Chinese in places of prominence in at least the government, but I believe in, in business as well, where they have racial quotas. And if you were to interact with maybe a critic of, of your organization or a critic of the white Australian policy, mm. I mean, I might just point to your neighbors contemporaneously as having policies like this. So if those countries are allowed to do that, why can't we morally, it, it seems equivalent other than the fact that they're non-white and we're white, mm. no, no animus to them, but we just like to have our own countries. They do that. Why can't we do that? But, other than that, uh, could you describe just generally like kind of what is the relationship with you know, the neighbors? I remember there's an East yeah. Timor conflict uh, back in the 90s. That was kind of weird. Mm. Like what happened with that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Australia, 
um, ever since the 1980s, has always had exceptional relationships with our Asian neighbors. Um, we've used them as trade partners, as friends. There was, um, you know how you've got your NATO in the North Atlantic. We have CETO, the, the, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, mm. and um, Australia actually Is that military this. Or, or trade? It's, uh, I think it's a bit of both. Okay. It's quite similar to, to NATO. Um, this was pioneered by Australia, uh, you know, 40 years ago now. And uh, we actually had, had kind of got the ball rolling on all of this without America being involved, which pissed off pissed off the Americans. <laughs> um, and they ended up joining in the end. They initially weren't interested in doing it, so we just went ahead and started doing it. And then when the ball was rolling, it was like, oh, yep, get the, get the Yanks on board, no worries. But, yeah, we've always had exceptional relations with our neighbors. Um, I'm, I'm very fond of uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, um, Thailand. Obviously, we fought extensively after World War II in anti-communist uh, struggles in Borneo. And obviously, we were, with, we were fighting in Borneo and Korea uh, with the United Nations and the U.S. And then Vietnam, obviously, after that, we... We were the only other country supporting the United States with boots on the ground in Vietnam after the French left. Um, and after after Vietnam, uh, the anti-communist action pretty much came to an end and it, it turned into civil unrest. So a lot of islands in the Pacific, like you mentioned, East Timor, have a lot of problems with tribal conflicts. In fact, there's a really, a really hot tribal conflict going on now in the same district uh, where hundreds of people have been killed in the last couple of weeks. Um, Australia has been offering support to these Pacific Island nations to help prevent them from collapsing into failed states. So we've provided financial support, police, military support um, to try and quell these ethnic you know, tribal conflicts, basically, because they they seem to never end. It's like these recent ones that have kicked off, I believe they are in Timor. Um, I might not be remembering correctly. Um, uh, they've just had an election and it's kicked off into another brutal civil war. Um, but I would say that on the whole, our relations with every, every country in Asia have been exceptional um, in terms of positive um, diplomacy. China being an interesting one. Um, China is our biggest trading partner uh, in terms of imports and exports. We're very integrated into the Chinese economy. And um, however, there's obviously the tactical uh, geopolitical struggle, uh, you know, the challenges around the Taiwan, the South China Sea, which causes us a lot of political grief with China. But so we're trying to balance the, the the mix between being on good enough terms that we can trade uh, fairly whilst also maintaining our um, view on trying to prevent China from reaching any serious imperialist ambitions through the rest of Asia because they've been throwing a lot of money at some of these smaller Pacific Island countries that we were fostering to try and build their political influence there. As part of their Belt and Road economic project, and also just for their their geopolitical influence in the Pacific, but on the whole, I would say 
our relations with our Asian neighbors are very good. Um, and it's unfortunate, yeah, as, as you rightly said, they all have immigration policies, predominantly anti-Chinese ones. Um, Indonesia was an exceptional example of this. In the 1960s, they, uh, they had a, a, a huge amount of civil unrest where up to a million people were killed who were suspected of being communists or Chinese or both. Um, and there's been a lot of history through Southeast Asia. Is that under Suharto? Yeah, that's right. And even a million, just, I didn't a, know it yeah. was that high. That's amazing. <clears throat> yeah. So this, this is in the 1965 to 1966 Indonesian mass killings. Wow. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of deaths. Um, I mean, Indonesia has 300 million people. It's an yep. enormous country. Yep. It, it, it's amazing. It's got a similar population to the United States, but it, yep. it hardly makes as much noise as the United States. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. So it's interesting. So Southeast Asia, we've always been their their friends and allies to try and stop the, the spread of communism, obviously, and um, that's that's translated pretty pretty well, I would say, into modern history. We support them. We trade with them. Um, so things are pretty good in the Southeast Pacific. The only, the only boiler is China. Do, do you have any, um, well, I'm sure you have some, but how sizable is the Indian population in Australia? Because it, it's, 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 it's a notable presence it. in growing. Singapore. Um, yeah, it, it is definitely growing in Australia. It, it is very hard to estimate, though, but it, okay. it would definitely, it would, it, in terms of actual citizens versus people who are actually here, People who are actually here, you might estimate around half a million to a million, okay. I would say. It's quite a bit. It's quite a bit. It is, yeah, quite quite a few. But I think a lot of them are temporary visa holders. I see. Well, I, I was going to ask you about this uh, sort of recent political alliance. I, I don't really know how much stock to put in it or, frankly, any of them uh, because I... I think more in terms of economic terms and frankly, just if there's a war, there's a military uh, war, you know, operation going on. But these, these sort of things on paper, I wonder actually how relevant they are until they are relevant. Uh, mm -hmm. But have you, have you noticed this quadrilateral or the quad thing coming up where the United States, um, Japan, Australia, and India are in this sort of like uh, group buttressing the rise of China, essentially, mm. in, in Asia. Have you noticed that? Any comments on it? Yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting. India is a really interesting country. Obviously, they've inherited our law and politics through uh, British you know, imperialism. And um, they share, I think they share a lot more of the the respect for our our civilization more so than China does. Um, hmm. Obviously, they present a threat to us demographically uh, in terms of immigration. But if if we put that demographic issue aside for a moment, I think um, India will be a very important partner for Australia <clears throat> and the United States in the future. Obviously, they're their, their their GDP growth, you know, has been seven percent plus for a very long time. Like they're mm -hmm. really they're killing it. They're probably going to be the new factory of the world. Um, and so having that instead of China, I think, is of of, of a great advantage. Uh, obviously, they 
they they have an appreciate i do i don't doubt that they have an appreciation for uh you know despite being conquered by the british empire i don't doubt that they have an appreciation for our institutions and the and the heritage that we gave them i suppose so it's a positive play in the future obviously if we can manage the immigration issue um you know good times are ahead in terms of the partnership with india yeah i've I've never really looked into this very much but um I i think of it sort of akin to like a student exchange program and if you are to have some sort of relationship with a country uh inevitably you know take diplomats for example or embassies you're going to have to have an exchange of people on your soils uh to some degree the question is how much but you know just from a very simplistic point of view if you were to enact a policy of of friendship whereby Mm. you do want to keep some of your demographics intact but still maintain some of that relationship how about a concept of okay india we're friends um, we respect you. You respect us, hopefully. How about this? If you want to send some people here, we'll let that happen, but only if we have the same number of people that go to your country. Um, mm. I don't know. I never heard that before, but just something that occurred to me. Uh, and that, that in, in practice, there's going to be more demand coming to you than the other way around, most likely. But in practice, that would keep some of the immigration uh, under control, but it would at least give you the sort of moral cover to say, look, we're, we're, we're being equitable and impractical too. Cause it's like, look, uh, you know, we, we understand there, there's some sort of balance here and, you know, we need to have representation over there. And if you want to have citizens here, then, mm. you know, we, we just need to balance that out. I don't know. That, that, that's for that's somebody the way, else. That's to, the way it always, it's, it's, the way the white Australia policy always operated is there, there was, there were still exceptions for diplomacy and business. Like there Mm -hmm. are always our friends in Asia were welcome into Australia for temporary business purposes or for diplomacy. Um, And we in fact widened the scope of that. And the ANA supported this widening in the 1950s under the Colombo plan, which was this idea of, allowing Asiatic students to come to Australia to learn at our universities and return to their home countries to enhance and build up their home countries with the skills and the ideas that they learned in Australia. This was like a broad broad appro- approach. The ANA supported it because the view was if these Asian students come to Australia, they get an appreciation for our country. They, they grow in favor of our country they learn good skills to go back and enhance and build their own countries mm-hmm. to mitigate mitigate the desperation of their own cut populations to come here. You know, they obviously they can return to their countries and enhance their standard of living. Then there's going to be less demand for them to come to Australia to try and right. <clears throat> escape poverty. So, you know, there there are there's definitely. Obviously, that that policy was very poorly timed because the the boomers came around and suddenly fell in love with them and realized we should be filling our country with them. <laughs> um, but I think there's definitely there's definitely points of policy where you can still have a, a ethno policy for immigration um, whilst also building and enhancing the relationships with your your, your neighbors in Asia um, with no indignity for anyone. Have ever any of your politicians 
said anything approaching that or are there current policies that are in the works to try to balance some of the immigration numbers no, out? Not at all. And do no, you think it's, that's... Going, it's going deep the other way. Um, the, okay. the, our prime minister's made some unilateral um, agreements with India to in massively increase Indian uh, immigration, wow. reduce the restrictions on Indians. Um, is so that... Yeah. In the United States, I mean, a lot of this is because the people who fund the campaigns of these politicians want it that way. I don't know how it works in Australia, but mm. what, what are the forces driving that? I mean, is it just a generational thing? They're boomers or cultural? The media just makes them you know, think this way, the education system, or is it... Is it corporate interests trying to open, you know, trade lanes or something like that? Mm. What What are the factors do you think that are are prompting these politicians? Because uh, uh, yeah. if if I've learned anything over the past few years, it's not the voters that influence them. So that's just yeah, my cynical think, take. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I think the biggest thing has been uh, financial interests trying to get cheap uh, labor and and skilled labor as well from India. So. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It's an interesting predicament. Our, our market is really hot at the moment. It's overinflated. They, especially in construction, they're trying to build more houses and build more st structures and infrastructure. Yeah. There's a massive. There's a massive demand for skilled labour, which is is falling really short in Australia. Is your education it, system not able to keep up with the native population, or the are the native Australians not interested in those types of degrees? Because America has a bit of that problem. I'll be I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. A lot of the uh, native-born Americans don't study the harder subjects in math, science, and engineering, and so a lot of them end up coming from abroad and then getting hired because those skills are in demand. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not happy about that situation, but I understand why it happens at least. And I, I implore American parents, frankly, to not repeat the mistakes of their parents and letting their kids just study whatever the hell they want, because I think they need to think a little bit harder about, you know, the, the, the yeah. future to be blunt. But, but I'm curious, you know, what, what is the lack uh, apparently of, of skilled labor in uh, Australia caused by, uh, in your opinion? Yeah, I think, I think the biggest cause really is that it's it's a vicious cycle so we big we bring in immigrants and suddenly we need to build houses for them we need to create services and facilities for them which creates more demand for labor which you can only find by bringing in more immigrants and then yet for those new immigrants mm. you have to build new houses and infrastructure yeah. and blah, blah, blah. there's and some of that here that too that's, yeah that's a big part of it real I estate think that's a really yep. big part mm -hmm. in australia the yeah. second part is, yeah, indeed, I think um, there are a lot of uh, skills that are, are people are just not doing. There is just there's simply not enough Australians um, going into to some of those higher skilled vocations. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are doing really stupid degrees, which sh shouldn't even exist in the first place. Right. The government did try some policies a few years ago to make in-demand degrees a lot cheaper and make useless degrees really expensive. Right. <laughs> so, um, but that was, oh, that was met with so much opposition. Like, how dare, how dare you make my gender studies degree more expensive <laughs> than an engineering degree? Um, so anyway. Do, yeah, do you have, think, uh, do you have free education or free college, I should say, or universities? Or they call it uni, I think, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is that free you, in Australia? No, it's not. It's okay. not free. However, the the system of debt works a lot different to the United States. So yeah. 
in in Australia, when you take out a loan for university, it's a loan from the taxpayer, um, which is indexed to inflation. There's no interest charged on it, and you only oh. begin re and you only re- re- begin repaying it once you earn over a certain salary. Wow! I think it's ar- around fifty five thousand dollars a year. That's pretty then generous. Then you start to repay it. Yeah, and the at the amount you pay back is proportionate to how large your income is. So, like, mm. if your income is less than sixty thousand, for instance. It's something like one or two percent of your net income will go towards paying the student debt off, okay. and then when you when you break your six figures, you're more up around the four percent of your salary paying it back. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a far better system than what I've heard is in the United States. Um, but yeah, it is not free. There was a time when it was free, so the boomers got a quick quick run for like four years. Uh, I think it was in the in the mid or late seventies. Where, edu- where university was free and everyone was just stacking in and walked away, no worries. Hmm. But yeah, there is yeah there is there's unquestionably a skills shortage in Australia, and the business in the business lobbies are going really hard to find overseas labour. Yeah, and they say it's just because there's a skills shortage, but they also recognise yeah, they also that don't want to pay as much. Would be cheaper. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yes, and they yes. they don't want to invest. And I mean, there is a lot of problems as well with traineeships and clerkships and stuff in Australia where mm-hmm. businesses are not giving enough people training. And the Australian Workers Union talks about this a fair bit, talks about the vicious cycle where business doesn't train someone, but then demands overseas labor, which increases the heat of the market, which requires more skilled labor, which they refuse to train, so on and so <laughs> forth. Um, there was one politician uh, Labor politician, you know, she's gone now. But during COVID, she was talking about how, you know, with all the borders shut and no immigration because of the the quarantine stuff, this was our opportunity to wean ourselves off reliance on foreign labor, <laughs> which was quite interesting. Um, and yeah, she's actually a real libtard politician. I just could not believe she surprised she said that. Yeah, uh, but anyway, but we, that didn't happen, and we've just. We've in fact got record-breaking immigration numbers now. Like we're expecting a couple wow. million over a couple of years, like making up for lost time. Um, so not good. Well, and I apologize to the audience if they don't want to hear me go on about the economy, but it is a subject I care about, and I think it matters. And one of the most notable things about Australia to me was it had never had a recession in the past thirty years until COVID. Mm. And that is just a remarkable statistic, given that maybe with the exception of China, uh, that just doesn't exist worldwide. And you could argue, actually, it probably is partly because of China's trade with Australia that that was the fact. But um, I haven't read it, but I did stumble upon this um, this mentioning of, of a book called uh, The Lucky Country, I believe, mm. about Australia. And it was, um, despite its title, apparently somewhat of a critique of the Australian society, to what degree I I can't speak to. But the only part of it that I can really understand, at least, is the the kind of uh, simplification or understanding of Australia as a natural resource-based economy. Uh, Principally, the exports are iron ore or coal, And a lot of that goes to, well, it used to go to Japan, but it now goes to China for steel making and things like that. And um, 
metallurgical coal, you know, for example, is, is needed in steel. And with the slowdown in their infrastructure build out and perhaps this Belt and Road Initiative maybe continuing that, um, are there concerns in Australia about the concentration in the mining sector, uh, natural resources, uh, natural gas? I think you have some big fields in the north as well. I don't think you have a lot of oil, but natural gas, I think you do. Uh, Australia is actually um, the largest producer of lithium, which is for the, the next generation of energy, arguably, uh, batteries at least. Uh, and Chile, I think, has larger reserves, but Australia's number two. Um, wh- where's the economy of Australia going? I mean, obviously, there's this huge fire economy, as we call it in the United States. So this is finance, insurance, and real estate, which mm-hmm. drives a lot of the, <clears throat> the shenanigans that go on in, over here. And I think there's some of that in Australia, it sounds like, too, with the immigration. Same thing in, in Canada, um, which is also somewhat of a natural resource-based economy. But once you become dependent upon a... a a commodity, sometimes you're at the whims of the global sh- fluctuations. And so if there's a slowdown in China, there might be a big slowdown in Australia. So is there talk about what is your strategy going forward? Um, you know, there used to be, I think, a manufacturing sector of note in Australia. Uh, Holden Automotive was a yeah. global car company. And I don't think that really, you know, goes on anymore. And so maybe you can talk about the changes in, in the uh, industrial makeup of uh, yeah. and the economic makeup of Australia and, and also going forward. So Australia traditionally was a very protectionist uh, country. We had the protection of infant industries, including yeah, car manufacturing, and then everything in the supply chain all the way down to the iron ore. Um, and we had an enormous secondary industry uh, in Australia when free trade started becoming um, a bit more interesting with Asia in the 1970s and 80s, uh, the government instead began subsidizing some of our manufacturing instead of protecting it with tariffs. The subsidies became very expensive. And yeah, around the break of the late 90s uh, and the, the, the first noughts, there was um, a, a very strong death of manufacturing in Australia. Uh, however, we were redeemed, as you rightfully point out, by the Chinese demand for coal and, and iron. Um, India is also a massive purchaser of our coal, which we don't think will be going anywhere quickly. Um, the big transition in mind with the end of the, the booming um, mining industry is to transition into mining for renewables. So obviously most of the Western world is going full psycho mode for battery operated cars and electrification. Um, <laughs> uh, so we, pre- yeah, as you rightfully I, said, I lithium. think they call it, uh, what, what is it? The, the new Tesla ludicrous speed or something like that. Yeah. Space, space balls reference, but go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're looking at that, uh, is huge Commonwealth investment into green hydrogen production to try and um, create a commercially viable producer of hydrogen, storing it in, in its liquid form under high pressure to export in the same way we do with uh, gas. So we export a lot of gas to Japan as well. That is a huge right. part of our industry. Um, the hydrogen one is interesting just because it it's almost like nu- uh, nuclear fusion, I should say, and uh, that it, it has a lot of promise in the theory, but in practice, 
Um, I've just never seen the numbers add up for hydrogen and it, yeah. um, it, I'm, I'm, I remain quite skeptical of that being the sort of new frontier of all these, uh, natural gas producers being able to spin it off into. Yeah, hydrogen. I agree. I, I think they're just trying to preserve their infrastructure yeah, by replacing it I with hydrogen. So. Yeah. Where I, I think electrification and batteries is probably going to be the winner and the hydrogen will die. It seems to be. Um, but yeah. yeah, there's 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 plenty of lithium in Australia and all of the other associated minerals. Gold mining is still a very big thing in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we do I, have oil yeah. and gas, um, but that's that's getting curtailed by the government. Well, now mining seems like it's still a very important sector. And, and I did see a yeah. very important statistic that I think a lot of people overlook when they look at reserves versus actual production and that the the government in australia actually supports the mining industry in the sense that the permitting process on average takes only about two years whereas in the united states it takes up to 10 years it it is it is really difficult to get anything done in the u.s when it comes to extraction uh with the exception of oil which you know in places like texas that has historical support from the government but for any other type of mining or extraction um i mean movies are made you know to protest this stuff and so um i think that's a notable difference in the sort of industrial policy of australia yeah yeah, I think the average Australian is is pretty well supportive of mining and extraction activities. Um, you know, there's there's been some drama about Aboriginal artifacts being blown up and destroyed in in, in a few mines, but I think on the whole, um, yeah, Australian society is conducive to it. I think everyone recognizes the benefit it's had for the whole country as a whole. Yeah. I did want to ask our guest, what would you uh, characterize as the pillars of Australian culture Mm -hmm. and some individuals who really epitomize it? Mm. Uh, Artists, uh, great engineers, something to that effect. But I think the Australian culture, um, other than surfer culture and the outback and the bushmen uh, is largely unknown to many many americans uh, because we're so similar well he mentioned the yeah. 80s and that was really the only time that australian culture seemed to be kind of unique to me and i think a lot of americans the music and the movies that were coming out you know, mm. crocodile tundee i mean as you know stereotypical so, as that might seem uh, in the eighties, there really was this kind of fondness, I think, for Australia. But I think since then, it, as you were pointing out earlier, in the in the in the aughts and, and thereafter, it, it's kind of been kind of blended in with this global stuff that it's kind of not clear mm. what Australia is anymore. So please, yeah, expand on that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's there's like two sides of this. There's what's the contemporary Australian culture, and then like what is the the heritage of it? I suppose like what are the eternal qualities which go back to our past. I think there's a few key tenets which differ for us from a lot of other uh, Western cultures, I would say. So a lot of this, a lot of the, um, I suppose, where you, where you go to find Australian culture. So Percy Stevenson was this Australian writer, um, political ad, you know, advocate. He wrote this, this small book called The Foundations of Culture in Australia. It was, it was his opinion in the 1930s 
that the most raw kind of unabridged form of Australian culture is expressed in some of the works of Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson. They were both poets and writers who wrote short stories about Australian experiences and Australian conditions and Australian ideals. And some of the unifying concepts between Lawson and Patterson and some of the other contemporary writers of the time is the idea of class distinction in Australia and how that plays out culturally. So obviously we inherited the conditions of the United Kingdom, which had a very rigid kind of conservative class structure where you were clearly, you know, this kind of upper class, wealthy aristocrat, landed aristocracy, or you're, you're kind of middle class professional, or you're the kind of peasant, or you're the, the worker, the industrial worker. In Australia, we had this, this what was kind of unique and, and strong to us before modernity, I suppose, like kind of modernity has begun imposing some of this everywhere else. But this idea of the, you know, every man in Australia has this this equal sense of of dignity and um, prestige and and um, honor. You know, like a a poor man walks on the street with his chin up and and looks can look the wealthiest man in the country in the eye and and say hello to him and have a frank conversation. You know, shake his hand. This, you know, it's often described as this egalitarian concept. Basically um, described by Henry Lawson in one of my favorite stories of his, Barney, Take Me Home Again. He describes the story of this Englishman called Johnson and his move out to Australia. And he said that, you know, when Johnson got to Salong, which was a town in Australia, he was thin. You know, he'd been living in the slums of London as an industrial worker. But when he got to Australia, he filled out. And the democratic atmosphere soothed his mind as he soon loved the place for its unconventional hospitality. Like the interesting thing with Australian culture, obviously you've got this this egalitarian concept where everyone has a say, everyone has their their dignity. Um, but then you also have this this hospitality, this cheeriness, and this um, this this happiness which which is brought to Australia. A lot of people point to our weather, you know, you've got blue skies and, you know, wide open fields and the, the freedom of, you know, the freedom on the wallaby, the, the blowing of the wind and all the rest of it, which creates a different sentiment in a person when compared to the cloudy, dark and dreary days of Europe where you live in poverty, where there is poor opportunity, where your class that you're born into is determinative of your destiny in Australia, which is, you know, shares similarity to the United States, obviously, you know, a vast and open land of opportunity where every man has his dignity, every man um, can kind of make his own destiny, while at the same time, unlike the United States, we had a, a very strong sense of ethnic and class solidarity. It's almost a bit of a, an oxymoron putting the things together. In Australia, the spirit of unionism and the spirit of having organized labor where every man would be, you know, his, his, his badge of honor was the fact that he never scabbed on the union, that when the union was on strike, he would be on strike too, even facing the dire consequences of starvation. 
it was this kind of Hegelian honor and um, courage of Australian workers to to build up a good standard of living, which meant that they built this, you know, in, in unbreakable bond of, of mateship and um, solidarity with each other to live in a, a place that's worth living, I suppose. So there's the spirits of, you know, unionism, mateship, egalitarianism. There's the spirit of um, family as well. Um, Australia has always had a very strong family culture. Um, yeah, I'd say those are probably some of the, the, the more high-level concepts of Australian culture, which kind of filter out into, into everything else. Um, if you look at the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say like when we always, when we talk about culture, it's always worth discussing the iceberg of culture. I'm not sure if you're familiar, um, with that concept, but yes, yes. Yeah. There's, there's all the, there's the overt obvious features of culture on top. Um, and then there's all the subtle things which someone wouldn't really think of when they're considering what culture is. Um, but yeah, go on. Sorry. Well, to that point, I was going to ask, uh, will be one of the deepest uh, levels of the iceberg for Australian culture, which would be Christianity. Yeah. What is the, the role of Christianity in sort of uh, pre-cosmopolitan Australia? Uh, was it a, an enduring aspect of the culture? Um, and if so, how, uh, how critical was it to the way of life in Australia and maybe mm. what combinations were many of the early Australians. Mm. Yeah. It's an interesting subject actually. And this is where we differ from the United States, uh, in a long way. So, um, I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a believer. Um, you know, our religious heritage is really important to me, but I, what I do find, however, whether it be from the convict part of our history, whether it be, um, just from the, 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 the sparsity, the distance in Australia's cultural history, people were living in very far off and isolated districts. So mm -hmm. in my, in my local district, people had been living here for uh, almost 40 years before there was a church um, constructed. And the only religious instruction they got would be from a traveling minister that would come through every, every year for, you know, about a month. Um, so there was definitely a great challenge obviously with literacy as well so if a lot of people couldn't read and write giving them a bible um that doesn't help them very much uh, without the instruction of a, of a minister um so in australia's religious history obviously being a, a, a british colony the, the church of england was the largest uh religious denomination um the Anglican denomination, more commonly called, or you might call them Episcopals in the United States. Um, absolute degenerates now, unfortunately. Um, and with that, the large influx of Irish brought with them the, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and they, I think, in terms of impact on society and the impression of religion, the Roman Catholics have had the strongest influence on Australian um, society and culture. Um, you know, when, for instance, if someone, if I were to tell someone at work that I've, I've got three kids, they'd say, what are you, a Catholic? You know, if, so with un, underpinning that low bit of the, uh, the iceberg, 
the Irish and the Roman Catholics have had the biggest Christian influence on society. Not to disparage my beloved Church of Scotland and the Australian Presbyterian Church, who's undoubtedly had a big contribution to Australia, the proportion of the population of that descent being Scots or people Dutch reformed um, heritage, you know, has always been five to 10% of the population, unlike the Roman Catholics being about 40, 45% and Anglicans or uh, Church of England being around 35, 40%, and then the remainder being non-believers. Are, are these numbers current? Is this current figures? No, or? no, those are, this is more like at the when the church actually had an influence in oh, Australia. Oh, I got you. In contemporary times, uh, a lot of it's interesting. The the Roman Catholics, when you go to the census data, they will identify themselves as Catholic, even though they've never been to church their entire life. However, the Protestants do not even identify as a Protestant, and so the the numbers on the census would indicate there that there's probably, in terms of the total population in Australia. You know, it is probably 35% identifying themselves as Catholic, then another 25% between the various Protestant um, denominations. And then, yeah, you're, you're around the 50% like non-believer slash agnostic slash not identifying. So in terms of the influence of the church on Australia today, it is absolutely abysmal. Um, by comparison to what the United States has. Obviously, the United States has some absolutely wacky evangelitards in massive numbers, um, but <laughs> there is a social, cultural effect it has. They're like, you know, protests against abortion and things of that nature in Australia are a very rare thing. Um, they do happen, but it's definitely on a political, cultural level religion is definitely on the back foot in Australia in, a, in the contemporary sense. And even in the historical sense, even when the majority of people were going to church, this kind of secularism of Australia, although it was never really explicit, I think the idea of, of a nation, the nationality and the loyalty to Australia definitely outperformed uh, religious uh, differences and allegiances to different religions. So the religious influence on Australia's politics historically as well is also pretty low, um, even when the, the majority of people were believing churchgoers. And I think I had asked, uh, what were some individuals, uh, other maybe, I know you named a few, but other individuals you would, you know, believe epitomize Real Australian culture. Um, uh, I feel like there's there's a, a there's a dearth of knowledge, maybe not just on my part, but on the part of many about who those individuals might be. We can name a lot of great American artists or great American cultural figures. Well, from the oh, movies, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think John Wayne is probably one of the more famous ones, and it, it's hard. Yeah. It's a hard question to answer because, if, especially if you don't have a movie industry, it's like you don't necessarily think of it this way, but. Um, have to be in a movie to be. Of course not. No, no. I of course not. It was just. No. I'm. I'm trying to think of trying to answer the question from our perspective. Like, what would we say? Yeah. Like, so for for instance, like the 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 mytho like the mythology like people who make up like the consciousness of what it is to be Australian. Like, 
one of the leading examples would probably be the man from Snowy River. Mm. Now, this is like a, a figure who is a, a stockman who was, you know, excelled in horse riding. And there's a whole story about him written by Banjo Patterson. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of exceptional characters, but we definitely don't have, unlike the, you, you raise an important thing, Adam, in the United States culture, you definitely have a more appreciation for like the veneration of these different people of your past, like these great heroes and these great characters mm. and is, has more of a cultural influence. And obviously the movie industries help that a lot. Um, it's quite, quite different in Australia. A lot of people, um, you know, couldn't really identify particular figures that they associate with Australian culture um, other than like maybe con some contemporary musicians and actors, you know, yeah. like, oh, like, you know, Nicole Kidman or, right. uh, uh, you know. Kate Blanchett. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Chris, he Chris Hemingway, um, you know, Thor, he's an Australian um you know but yeah so it's and that's just part of it and like it raises the, the the wider issue and that is there's a large dearth of knowledge in australia about people's their own cultural and national heritage like i i can name stacks of politicians and writers and painters and we've summarized a lot of material on our website on the australian natives um Wikipedia. We've got our own little wiki together where we put together all of this Australian literature and, you know, all the history of different founding fathers and people who are influential in our mm -hmm. politics and culture. Um, because there's a there is a, an enormous lack of knowledge in that space. Um, but yeah, there there has been some larger than life figures in our history which are just, you know, if you if people had appreciated the people that are in our heritage by virtue of knowing them they really would not be picking up um, foreign politics and kind of running with it. It's a, it's a great um, disadvantage in Australia. A lot of people pick up American politics or a lot of people will pick up um, esoteric, you know, his, historical politics because they think there's nothing to Australia. There's no, there's no salt on the meat. Where, However, when you do a bit of reading, you'll find there was in fact a, you know, a hundred plus year struggle for the cause of a white Australia and the creation of a working man's paradise, which is backed by all these great figures like Henry Parks and William Spence and Alfred Deacon, all these great men who are great speakers and great advocates for the cause. There's all these great poets and writers, as I mentioned, Banjo Patterson, Henry Lawson, you got Salmond and um, Ian Newdy, you've got all these different writers and um painters and artists and there's a whole body of worthy and honorable australian culture and history that's available but just most people are living in ignorance of it and are raised and fed by their television which is piped in from the united states do they not teach this in elementary school about your your founding and your history and some they of the do. pivotal it's, it's people. A very, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very shallow look at it and it's very early in your education. So it's when you're, you know, seven or eight years old, you're taught all this stuff. And then if, and there's no repetition, like mm. by the time you reach senior school, you've forgotten all of this stuff and you're only blessed if you find it again by some miracle. Wow. It's, it's very, it's, you know, to an extent, uh, very similar here. 
I would say. Nowadays, they've they've been Nowadays. Er- erasing so much of what Hans and I were probably taught compared to children today. But uh, mm. when I was growing up, you know, they talked about a lot of the the great figures who fought the wars and you know uh, the founding of the country at least was was really important in our education and to this day everybody knows those names but you know there has been an active campaign to label them as flawed people and not worthy of respect and we know why they're doing that and who those people who are behind those actions are we don't need to Mm. go into it i'm sure but it, it it sounds like it it um, it may not have 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 been at that level uh, ever in Australia, or perhaps it was, but maybe it's less today. I don't know. But that's very Hans raises a very important question because you do need to have these role models and these these mythic figures. I think to inspire people, mm. and um, it's it, we, we, I think we need to work towards a positive. Uh, identity as opposed to a you know negative one where we're the sort of victim i mean i think that's that's never a good place to be and you want to you want to be inspired to do the great things right and so yeah yeah i hope yeah, the organization other, the other, can play a role in that yeah that's right yeah i mean you touch yeah rightly on the on the victimhood complex i mean a lot of it's unfortunate but a lot of people who might even find out the truth about most issues will suddenly realize that they've been victimized by the system right and then they they'll they'll feel um they'll feel morally uh they'll morally allow themselves now that they're a victim to not do anything and to just screw around waste time do trolling mm-hmm. um be you know waste their lives you know there's so many people that could be very capable leaders that could be making a difference that could be doing good. I mean, the other thing we really foster in the ANA is this idea that, you know, why are you interested in politics? You keep asking why and why and why, and eventually someone's going to tell you because they want to do good for the people they care about. Mm-hmm. So you have to ask yourself, what good can you do for the people you care about without having affected a change in government? And there, in fact, are a lot of very good things that could be done for our people and for our community, which don't require the overwhelming shift in national politics and government. There are a lot of good things that can be done right now if you have the effort, the energy to do it, even if the system is rigged against you in one way or another, you are still able to overcome those challenges by using the strength of will and character and conducting yourself in a good and honorable way, you can overcome those challenges and you can do good in the community. And this is, this is what we, we tell everyone in the ANA, you know, we're not waiting for the revolution to go do good and to help people, you know, like we, we help people now, you know, help find work for them. The ANA has financial resources, which we give people money when they have their first child. We have money to lend people to retrain for skill, for work. You know, there's all these projects we have and financial resources that we've been able to accumulate to do good for people, you know, right now. You know, we, there's, there's no waiting for um, the successful overturning of national politics, you know. Don't be a victim, but be, be a winner and go out and conquer and do good. Because up in Newcastle, they have very strange mating habits. 
All the young women of Newcastle walk down the main street, which is called Hunter Street, for reasons that will become obvious later on in the song. All the young men of Newcastle drive down Hunter Street in their hot FJ Holdens with chrome-plated grease nipples and double-reverse overhead twin-cam door handles. They're sitting eight abreast in the front seat and they lean out the window and say real cool things to the sheilas on the footpath, like, uh, g'day. And every now and then, of course, one of the young ladies thinks to herself, ooh, what she thinks. This was the old beach hotel where all the surfers used to hang out and there's some rock bands and fights and all those good sort of things, the golden sands. And where this empty block of land is was one of Newcastle's finest milk bars. Every, every booth had its own personal selectomatic jukebox, but those sort of things seem to have gone by the board nowadays. Don't you In return for a copy of the Newcastle song, I was presented with a copy of Symphony of a City by the Lord Mayor. Uh, what's so, Symphony uh, of a City? Oh, Symphony of a City is a book about the, the beauties of Newcastle. It's very thick. I see. And anyway, Norm and his seven mates are sitting in the front seat of the hot FJ Holden. They pull up outside the Parthenon milk bar. And standing out the front of the Parthenon was this beautiful looking Sheila. Ooh! Ooh! said young Normie, mumbling some, something incomprehensible about the propensity of rats to go up drain pipes. Oh, he said! Because he'd come top in his class in English, you see. It's, it's, still, it's still the last bastion of, of, uh, of the great Australian mateship thing, I guess, you know. I find that pretty unattractive, and a lot of people do, do you? Yeah, I do, really. I, um... I'm one of these unfortunates that prefers women's company to men's. The bloke on the footpath looked at Norm and he said, What do you think you're doing, mate? And quick as a flash, Norm said, What do you think you're doing? The bloke on the footpath said, Oh, what are ya? Norm said, What are you? The bloke on the footpath said, Do you want to go, do you, mate? Hey? Norm said, Yeah, I'll have a go, mate. The bloke on the footpath said, Well, come on, get out here and have a go. Norm said, No, get in here and have a go. The bloke on the footpath said, come on, mate, what's your name? Norm said, you don't know who you're picking, do you? The bloke on the footpath, on the foot, the, the chap said, nah, who am I picking? Norm said, you find out. Oh, he's quick, you got no idea. The bloke on the footpath said, come on, what's wrong with having a go out here? And Norm said, what's wrong with having a go in here? Then all at once there was a break in the traffic. And as any young Newcastle lad knows, when there's a break in the traffic and you're getting monstered by a nine foot tall hell's angel, don't you ever let a chance go by, oh Lord, don't you ever let a chance go by. Is there much for kids to do in Newcastle? No, well, not really. Do you think eventually you might move out of Newcastle? Yes, hopefully yes. Where do you think you'd go? I'd go to Sydney if I could get the chance. Don't you ever let a chance go by.